0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the Air. Right on, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to 1 and repeated the following Sunday at 11 a.m. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, ooh, look, have you read this, or have you seen that? And we know you need this, with its cruelly-situated right-at-the-front-so-you-trip-over-at-New-Zealand-New-Releases table, and worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in book lovers' Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Right On with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors, and it's sponsored by that fabulous team at the University Bookshop. So join us for the next hour as we get to delve into that wonderful world of books. My first guest, Emma Neal, is an award winning writer of six novels and six collections of poetry. And she's also an editor and was the editor of the New Zealand literary journal Landfall. She's recently released her first collection of short fiction called The Pink Jumpsuit. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you, Vanda. Lovely now it's always a pleasure to interview you, and you know we've chatted on the show in the past about your novels and poetry collections. So, what led you into exploring short fiction and and why now
1: well it's I guess in a way it's been a long time coming i've been a lover of um, short fiction as a reader since I was very young, and um, I guess like many of us who Um, studied literature at high school and university, um, was immersed in people like Mansfield and and Janet Frame and um, other amazing short fiction um, writers. But um, I was very hesitant about trying the form because when I first started writing, I guess it was one of my my first um, attempts at writing and everything I tried Everything I did was was kind of tainted (laughs) and um, either too sentimental or um, didn't get the balance between characters' backgrounds and action um, kind of even enough. Um, But I found that when I was immersed in reading really good quality short fiction for Landfall um, as an editor, I just started kind of wanting to to join the chorus, I guess, because that was an art form that I was really immersed in then. And... um, and also, I was I was lucky enough to get a commission, actually, before I was editing Landfall. Um, I got a commission from Dave Loughrey at the Otago Daily Times to write a story that was going to be published in two parts. And um, at that stage, I was actually not feeling very confident about my short fiction skills, but I thought, well, I, I kind of can't really let him down, and it is an opportunity to try it out. Um, so I did, and he published it. And I kind of felt that that and um, reading the submissions to Landfall together combined to um, give me the confidence to try.
0: (laughs) That's so Mm. funny because um, that was my first foray into writing a short story too, (laughs) was doing it for the summer reading. So we have that in common.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He had a good eye, I think, for people who might be able to turn their hand to short fiction, even if they didn't publish that extensively beforehand. Mm. Mm. So um, you said that you have been,
0: uh, you know, an editor for Landfall. So you know, when you were in that role, what were you looking for, and what do you look for as an essential element in a short story, or essential elements?
1: Um, well, gosh, multiple things. And I guess as soon as I start to sort of lay down a framework, I can think of exceptions to the to the rules that um, you know might really engage your attention because they are doing something differently. Um, I think looking for a strong sense of voice, strong sense of character, um, inventive use of language, um, often a character at a crisis point, um, so that the, the action and the intensity is, is there right from the get-go rather than that kind of slow burn build-up and, um, you know, sort of laying out of, of background and history that you might see in a novel where you have much more time to, um, kind of go into, into other detail. So it's a sense of narrative pace and strong character and, yeah, interesting language. Um, those, yeah, those are the things I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: oh, having edited and selected and judged short stories, um, yeah. so did you find that that made you super critical of your own work? You know, was that insight an impediment or was it was it an assist...?
1: Hmm, I think it might have been not an either-or, but a weird sort of combination of the two um, because I definitely felt inspired and energised by reading other really high-quality work that was being submitted. But it did mean that, um, well, I always do, you know, recraft and, and rewrite things more than, probably more than five times, even for a short fiction. So um, I think that's that sort of really critical analytical judging side um is inevitably there in my own work as well um, and yeah, you just need to have a really strange combination of of that um ability to to judge your own work, but also a bit of <laughs> resilience and thick skin if if you get things um returned to you when you first submit them places, so you kind of both have to be tough and also um and open. It's a funny, a funny combination.
0: That's quite um, interesting. Being on the other, on the other foot, then when, you know, I, I have knowing you as an editor, for example, Landfall, and you are the person people are submitting to. It must be very strange then for you to submit your work to others.
1: Hmm. Um, I think for any writer, it's something that you you're constantly up against. You know, um, trying to find the right place to send things, the right editor who actually will um, engage with your work, and it's inevitable that some people won't like it. Um, so over the years I've kind of learnt both to try and filter um, where I might send things to more carefully, but also um, understand that being turned away even after you've had X number of books published is is actually just part of the career. And, um, you know, it's not a kind of a grave judgement on your... On your personal capacities, it's more about what is the right fit for a particular journal and a particular editor at that time. And, um, so, one of the things about that is that often you can send work out, have it returned, send it out again, and you get an acceptance that is kind of, um, even more of an affirmation than that first one might have been. So I've, I've learned to see, um, a decline or a rejection as actually <laughs> in a very Pollyanna way, it's like an opening <laughs> of another opportunity. Um, you have to try not to see it as a a comment on your character, on your own character, <laughs> um, not the fictional character. Yeah. So it's a long game. It is. It is a long, long game. <laughs> yeah. With lots of ups and downs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So venturing into the, the realm of the short story, um, I think, as I said, I've ch- chatted with you over uh, about your novels. What did you find the benefit in in writing short stories and short fiction over you know, the 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 long, the narrative, the novel?
1: Um, it's all kinds of things. One of them is a sort of an added sense of heat and urgency to the to the short story. I think um, there's the feeling of an ending, kind of always hovering on the edge of your consciousness. To me, that I I seem to know where a story is going. Um, more quickly than I do with a novel. Um, and so that's a kind of um, allure almost, I guess, um, enticement as the writer, because you think you're going to get somewhere <laughs> um, in, a, in a sort of shorter amount of time. Um, I really enjoyed not having to think about um, the backstory for the characters with the same um, degree of detail that you do for the novel and you can kind of get away without explaining some things which you might not be able to in a novel. Um, and I think I've probably learned from that as well, that, well, I hope I have, that <laughs> mm-hmm. I might be able to transfer some of those lessons into writing longer form work later. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting way of, of wielding and using economy and concision, um, yeah, which I've really enjoyed. So, did you start
0: um, this collection thinking, I'm going to write a short story collection? Or had, had you, um, you know, in addition to the, the story that we talked about for the ODT, had you already written some short stories over a period of time?
1: I did have a few flash up my sleeve and a few that um, hadn't been published anywhere else. And I did have one story that I wrote, um, I think, when I was in my really early 30s, and it was something that i I'd never sent out anywhere, but I just kind of kept um, in my in my sort of metaphorical bottom drawer. <laughs> um, and when I pulled it out again, I actually liked it more than I expected. And um, even though it wasn't one that has a very strong narrative arc, it's it's the one that's called Old, New, Borrowed, Blue, and it looks mm. at various couples um, and different kind of angles on intimacy and, and either relationship success or failure. And um, so it's kind of like a... a a number of vignettes strung together Um, and when I looked at it again I thought actually that does still work so um, yeah there's there's material that dates from quite a long time ago and there are flash fictions that I was writing almost up to the the deadline for getting the clean manuscript off to the publisher so um, in that sense even though it's a a first collection it's got some older material in it so in some ways it's an old book
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's lovely to know that you were able to pull out a work that you had done so much earlier and, and think, oh, this is all right.
1: <laughs> mm. Mm, I guess that, you know, it, it sort of taps into that adage about how you should never throw anything away as mm. a writer, um, because you might be able to go back to it with um, a clear eye and see potential in it either to rewrite or to just kind of tinker with slightly and um, bring out, Yeah.
0: Yeah, and with a slightly um, f- foggyed, aged lens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> only uh. slightly. <laughs> <laughs> so, while we're looking at the sort of definitions a wee bit, you mentioned their flash fiction. Um, so can you explain to the listeners, you know, what is the difference between flash fiction and a short story?
1: Mm. Well, it really is just um, you know the basic definition is just a matter of length and um various journals have their own parameters for that like some will say a flash fiction is anything under a thousand words others say um must only be 350 and there are all kinds of even smaller forms which have got um kind of quirky names like drabbles and um (laughs) micros and so on which have a set yeah a set word limit um And so it's a matter of intensity and and brevity, really. Um, And obviously, some people who write Flash tend to um, lean more towards uh, the kind of poetic, sensuous, sensory language um, side of the spectrum, and others prefer narrative and plot. And it it really just depends. Sometimes it depends on the story itself, what what it calls from you, I think. Um, Yeah, whether you see it as closer in relation to a poem or to to a short story um, so even though it is so short it has real flexibility I think mm. um, which is another one of the, the sort of excitements and enticements about it which
0: leads on really nicely um, you mentioned in poetry um, you know, in, in this collection you explore so many ideas and themes um, as you do in your poetry so, so when you're chewing, a, chewing on an idea how do you decide that yeah, this is going to be a short story or rather than hey I see a poem
1: in that Hmm. Gosh, that's a really good question um, For me, I think it is mainly to do with um, the music of the language in that when you write a poem with line breaks you're also calling on science, silence um, silence and quietness and pause and pacing in a way that's more intensified than it is in prose, I think um, So you kind of you have another tool in your in your toolkit when you're writing a poem um and that's you know the heightened musical aspects of language so for me um often it's something quite intuitive and inspective now um whether or not I think it's going to work as a piece where um, that aspect is is really important to the telling um or whether it's going to be something that needs um yeah, but the sort of the longer the longer form. I mean, it's a, we're kind of saying short and long it has a you know the, the definitions change depending on what what genre you're talking about. Obviously, because a short story is longer than a lyric poem, mm. um, but a short story is shorter than a novel. So it's a it's a kind of sometimes the definitions just get very blurry and um, less helpful than they could be.
0: Um, so there's no real rules, which is one of the wonderful things about writing, isn't it? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. I think each piece kind of requires its own set of rules in a way. Um, so you're making them up each time, which is is um, often really challenging. But um, on the other hand, if we didn't have that novelty and um, you know need for creativity, we wouldn't be doing it.
0: So, so there's a sense of liberation in being able to just push at the rules or totally ignore them uh, when writing short stories. Then.
1: And... Hmm. Hmm. There is. Um but you're also always still using your your critical faculties. So um when I say that I feel liberated by the form it's not it's not quite the same as like rolling down a grassy hill in the sunshine. <laughs> it still takes, you know it still takes um a lot of intellectual and creative energy I think and you can still feel quite depleted afterwards when um you know, you've done this kind of mental um Marathon, I guess, yeah,
0: I can understand that too, you know from from reading the short stories because they are so intense and so dense, so so writing at that level of intensity must be quite mentally and emotionally draining at times.
1: Mm. it can be depending on the material, I think, um, yeah, depending on how removed it is from your own experience, how much of it is fictionalized, and how much of it is um, calling on you know. Um, kind of deeper, intimate preoccupations. Um, yeah, which, which is another interesting thing that you have to balance as a writer, isn't it? That that, um, that sense of how you are inevitably sometimes processing your own psychological preoccupations. And other times it is um, um, kind of pure escapism in, in a non-pejorative <laughs> sense. <laughs> Because I was mm. going to ask
0: you know how as a writer how much do you mine your own your own experiences in writing um, both your short fiction and your poetry or your friends you know writers are shameless <laughs> we, mm. we borrow off mm. other people's
1: right, um, lives as well. Mm. Um. Again, it, it will depend on the particular piece, but yeah, there are there are definitely times when I do call on my own experience. Um, sometimes as a way of processing it, sometimes as a way of actually um, engaging with bigger social issues and and thinking, oh, this would be a useful way of illustrating, um, I don't know, the sort of, say, the toxicity of of misogyny, for example. Um, So you can use, you know, a personal incident to illustrate a bigger social preoccupation. Um, Yeah, so it's a kind of, um, it's very much a to and fro, I think, between imagination and experience. Um, a constant shuttling
0: dialogue hmm. and all well, you know, just look thinking about some of the stories in particular. you know anyone who 's ever hosted a children 's birthday party can relate to party games um, so so does writing you know allow you to behave on a page in ways that you 're far too well to be brought up to do so in real life? <laughs>
1: Definitely, definitely. Sometimes there is that. Um it's almost a kind of revenge fantasy <laughs> in some in some situations. And um yeah, and in other ways I think um yeah, I mean you can be you can you can also do what well sometimes I used to say that my novels were a way of um well they were started by the question what if? And um I feel as if some of the stories like those those in the in the collection that tend towards um the sort of edging towards science fiction mm. or fantasy it's as if that what if um question is dialed up you know turbocharged and um and in in that particular story that you mentioned, which isn't science fiction or fantasy that's that's almost it's almost bordering on um, <laughs> horror or crime at the end, i suppose, then it's mm. another way of yeah turning up that dial on what if what would happen if um, someone actually went to the extremes that sometimes um we fantasize you feel pushed about to. <laughs> mm, yeah yeah exactly
0: and that was one of the one th- yeah. um, things about this collection was that you had, you had a lovely balance of things that you know people we could relate to and then you had some just deliciously creepy um, sheer fantasy numbers was it fun to write those
1: <laughs> it was fun and it's also i was thinking about this beforehand it's also a way of getting Perspective on some very um, uh, oh, I'm trying to find the right word, the right adjective, on some very um, turbulent um, material. So, one example, which is definitely um, definitely has a fantasy element, is the story Rack. And there, you know, you could write a social realist version of that story, where the, the parents were just feeling. Um, the loss of their son as he changes and grows away from them Um, and that would be perfectly feasible but but in this particular story the the metamorphosis or the transformation is really weird and bizarre and I felt like that kind of was a way of channeling um, the intensity of that loss Mm. and um, in a way it's like that kind of fantasy takes you to a, a safe place where you can you can contemplate some of the things that we experience in real life um, from a so-called sort of safe zone and then it it sort of strengthens you to come back and and deal with them um, in the real world, perhaps. Um, So that helps you as the writer but also
0: gives that opportunity for the reader as well.
1: Mm, Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but it's a kind of defamiliarizing technique which actually in a way um, is... A strengthening
0: thing I think mm. yeah so we talked earlier about um, you having been an, an editor um, so when you are crafting your stories, you know, does that your inner editor find it hard to, to know when to actually stop
1: mm. Mm. Um, when to stop being critical do you mean yes. or when, to stop, yeah. when, when the, to when stop the story re-working. is done
0: mm. is it ever done
1: yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it is. I think um yeah, 'cause there have been situations when I've gone back to look at older work and thought, Oh, I wish I could take that sentence out or um put another adjective in there <laughs> or, or whatever. Um yeah, I think it's a very it's a very um random unscientific thing that point when you feel like something is finished. And and sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes you know I send it out on that kind of feeling of euphoria, yay, something's finally done, and then it comes back, it boomerangs back, and I think, well, I was obviously wrong <laughs> about that one. <laughs> um, so I don't know, it's a really, it's almost a kind of woo-woo <laughs> 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 wave of crystal at, <laughs> um, at the window thing, yeah. when is it finished, I don't know. I don't know.
0: (laughs) So what advice would you give to um, writers or want to be writers wanting to have a go at writing a short story?
1: Um, Find yourself a quiet place and some uninterrupted time. Put a sign on your door saying do not disturb. (laughs) Put your devices and the internet far out of your reach unless you're researching I suppose. Maybe that's a later draft. <laughs> mm. And just um, make yourself do it. Just sit down and do it. Um, I feel like we put so many obstacles in our way, um, maybe maybe deliberately to self-sabotage, but you really just have to um, commit to that. And and sort of, as my friend Majella Cullen, and another Dunedin-based writer, says, you have to back yourself. Um, so... Yeah, just just do it.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Emma, thank you so much for coming on the show today and um, talking about The Pink Jumpsuit and your own writing and how you do that. And I look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon, or oh, sometime. I won't put pressure on you and say soon, um, for your,
1: for your <laughs> next creation. Oh, thank you for the invitation, Vanda, and thanks for all the always stimulating questions.
0: <laughs> it's been great. Thank you. We're going to take a short music break and then when we return, I'll be talking with Chris Prickle about James Courage Diaries. Back soon. Mm-hmm. You be better. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture perfect, just smell those books and breathe atmosphere. With its staff who entice me with, oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front, so you trip over at New Zealand New Releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Van der Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors, and it's sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Well, November the 15th is the International Day of the Imprisoned Writer and recognises writers who are and were persecuted for their writing and just also for championing um, free speech. In New Zealand, this day is called Courage Day in recognition of the works of James Courage. Chris Brickle is a Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Otago and the author of many books, including Mates and Lovers, A History of Gay New Zealand, and more recently, Queer Objects. And his latest work is as editor of James Courage Diaries. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Anna. James Courage was a Christchurch-born writer of novels, plays, poems, and short stories, and his works were published from 1933 through to 1961. So let's start talking about James and his work. So Mm. can you tell our listeners a wee bit about his background?
2: Okay, so he grew up, he was the son of a runholder, um, grew up near Amberley in Canterbury and went to College in Christchurch before um, moving over to London. And it was in London that he really developed himself as a as a writer of novels, short stories, plays, and some poetry. So he dabbled in all of the writing genres. And um, yeah, he only came back to New Zealand once in 1953. So he was very much an expatriate writer. Um, yeah, and a very interesting, curious.
0: So, um, you know, what in particular made his work significant when we're looking at, uh, in terms of literature and New Zealand literature?
2: So Courage, um, even though Courage moved to the UK, he always saw himself as a New Zealand writer. And so it's writing many of his books. He wrote eight, and I think five of them were set in New Zealand, even later on in in his life. And he was very much a chronicler of the life of Canterbury, particularly, again, um, holders and their families and the family relationships between people there. And he did set some novels in in the UK as well, but but you really sort of see him as a a New Zealand writer where he talked a lot about the people and the the landscapes of Canterbury. He's a very vivid writer and he captures human interaction and human emotion particularly keenly. And in 1949, he published a book called A Way of Love, which was the first gay novel written by a New Zealander that was published. So that's a pretty significant uh, landmark piece of work. So in in some circles, that's what he's most well known for. But actually, he has quite a few fans in the UK and in Canterbury who are interested in, in those aspects of his writing, too.
0: So, um, clearly, New Zealand was always in his heart then, if he, if yes, he set was. his novels um, over, um, although living in Britain, set his novels in New Zealand, which is quite amazing. And um, no, very interesting, as you say, so that was the first work of gay fiction by a New <laughs> Zealander. So back in that time, the fact that this was published, you know, who was his publisher? You know, what publisher was bold enough to publish some a work that was um, a gay novel?
2: Oh, well, that's a question that's caught me on the hop somewhat. I can answer who his American publisher was. That was Putnam. And I can't remember this. Is it, English publisher? it may have been Constable or Kate, who were his two uh, publishers. I'm not sure which one published that book, but it was somewhat daring for its time. In, in our own sense, of our own time, it's, it's somewhat apologetic, but it's also very much a, um, a story of life in a gay circle in London, written by a gay man full of gay characters and writing about a gay life. So even though it wasn't uh, uh, the sort of assertiveness you'd find from a pride novel of the 1970s or 80s, it was one that really did describe a life that until that point hadn't been particularly well documented in either the UK. It was one of the few novels that had a, uh, gay protagonist at the centre written at that, at that point and, uh, and certainly in terms of what had been published in New Zealand so it was very much a pioneering novel really
0: And at that point p- politically, um, you know, of course um, being gay was illegal at, at mm. some stage was mm. when that novel came out um, was it still deemed as, as illegal um, you know, so was it quite daring on that front as well?
2: Yes, the law was liberalised in the UK in 1967, and the novel was published in 1959. So actually, uh, it was some years before the law was was loosened up, and yet uh, it's pretty clear that, that, that the author of the novel um, was gay and so was likely involved in illegal activity, but it was... It was pretty amazing i mean courage was very much someone who was both very proud of his sexuality and tormented by it all at the same time and that comes through in the novel but it comes through in the diaries which we'll talk a bit more about in the moment but there's a really sense where he's on a bit of a roller coaster he was writing about um the rights of of queer people in the 1920s so very early on in his life but he also saw being gay is something which was was somewhat shameful. If you can imagine those two impulses running through the one person through that really significant period of New Zealand and and English society where few people were talking publicly about homosexuality at all. Kind of amazing. It's a kind of an amazing mixture in an author, I think.
0: Yes, it must have created an incredible tension for him on on how to... um, Ex- express that. So, you know, how important was he for paving the way then for um, for other authors in writing gay fiction?
2: I think I think courage was really important in that in that respect because he was moving away from the somewhat sensationalist kind of way of writing, which which did happen through the sixties, some extent through those kind of cheap paperback novels. But he was also starting to pave the way for. Uh, post-gay liberation literature, and because he died in 1963, he didn't actually see those legal or political changes in his own lifetime, so he's very much someone who's laying the groundwork for new ways of writing about gay experience, but um, yeah, from a a point of view of someone who never actually saw that social change ultimately, which is Mm. quite bad.
0: So how were his, his books received um, by both um, other you know, the gay community, but also by the public in general?
2: So he had lots of uh, fans who would write in fan mail about a way of love. And so there are letters from, you know, a display artist in the Cargill writing the letter in the UK, James Courage London, you know, they got to him. And, and they, they, they adored it because it was something that they could see their own lives reflected in. The press was varied, he actually had some quite positive responses to his gay literature and his non-gay literature too, Uh, and he had some pretty hostile reaction, there was a really, what can only be described as really kind of awful, nasty review in Landfall, which Mike Joseph, the English lecturer wrote, which was just dismissive and horrible, and I think Charles Grash, who of course was editor of Landfall, and what... Uh, disappointed that he'd sent it out to Joseph for review. So there was both very, very positive feedback. People in London would ring him up and say how much they liked his books, for instance, you know, Uh, as well as a more, you know, a more reserved public response. But by the end of his life, he came to feel that that was a very important book and he really had made a contribution. So that was, that was actually kind of cool.
0: And of course, the extraordinary thing that happened um, with the, the novel A Way of Love is that I don't know, it was banned in Zealand yes. um, by the, well, I love the name of this, Interdepartmental Committee. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yes. it, it sounds very Orwellian, doesn't it? It um, does sound
2: very Orwellian, yeah. <laughs> yeah they banned it alongside um, yeah, Jack Kerouac Book and yeah, a few other, sort of, there's another gay novel from the U.S., so yeah, that, that committee had a bit of a go.
0: Mm. And what was, what was the reaction um, from New Zealanders and abroad to this ban?
2: Not much really, as far as I can see. It happened over a year after the novel uh, appeared in print. The, some of the libraries removed it. And some of them, like the Public Library, happily just shuffled it away quietly to the stacks in the basement and kept it. So, yes, there was a bit of... There wasn't much reaction, actually, here, from what I can tell. Charles Charles Brash was furious um, and made a few noises about this. Not much on the whole, I don't think.
0: And um, it's interesting because... um... And apt that in New Zealand, uh, on the well, and internationally, on the fifteenth of November, we is the day of the imprisoned writer. And in New Zealand, it is actually called Courage Day um, after James. And also something that happened with his mum.
2: Oh, Sarah, his grandmother. Now, Sarah, his grandmother wrote a novel about life in the Canterbury High Country, and she only thinly disguised the names of some of her neighbours who recognised herself in the book. And so most of the copies of that book uh, were destroyed and um, I can't remember the title of it. I haven't read it yet. I've got a copy on the way and that book was uh, would subsequently be published later on. So both James and his grandmother, both um, Sarah, both got it in the neck really for aspects of their own writing.
0: Yes, so that, you that, um, know, the New Zealand Society of Authors named the New Zealand um, celebrations of, or recognition of um, Day of Imprisoned Writer, which also defends the rights to freedom of speech and expression. Courage Day, which which is is quite fantastic. Now, of course, uh, James Courage was a prolific diarist and uh, and these diary entries are the basis for your book, um, James Courage Diaries, that you have edited. So what interested you... Um, in James Courage and his diaries in the first place?
2: So I was aware in 2005 that the embargo was coming off the diaries and I had feeling that they were likely to be fairly open and frank. And so as the embargo came off, which his sister imposed, I trotted along to the Hocken and had a look. And, and they are, I mean, they are absolutely amazing. They're amazing as the... Oh, the open diaries of a New Zealander are amazing because aspects of courage that no one really much had to come and through. He was a brilliant travel writer. He was an amazing writer who captured the essence of people sometimes in ways that were witty and slightly cervic and quite um, revealing and incisive. He documented life in the Blitz in London and and it's one of you know one of the very best uh, descriptions of the Blitz in London, and he also talked about, in very, very much detail, and the book only includes some small amount of this, but he talked about a, a treatment with a psychiatrist in London for depression during the 1950s, and um, there are not many accounts of New Zealanders undergoing those kind of talking therapies at that point in history. So the diaries actually function on a range of different levels and, and cover a range of different topics. The other aspect I really like about them is he talks about his struggles and his hesitancy with his writing. And so there's a sense of what it's like to be a writer. And he could spend two hours writing a sentence. And he talks about this kind of struggle of being a writer. And 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 you know, many of us who write things can identify with that, I think. So there's a there's a real multiple kind of elements to this, what I think make it very fascinating. And you, you get a strong sense of him as a person and as a deeply conflicted and troubled and fascinating person at the same time.
0: One of the things that struck me is that it's quite extraordinary that his diaries still exist in the first place, um, yes. that they were um, deposited in the in the Hocken Library. Mm. Um, did you find out, you know, why his sister chose to do that, chose to embargo?
2: I think she embargoed out of a sense of kind of family privacy and protecting him, but also possibly protecting family reputations. But of course, you need to be very grateful for the fact that she deposited them at all and didn't destroy them, even though there was an embargo on them. And and I wonder if perhaps she felt quite she felt quite concerned about them as well. She couldn't bear to destroy this writing of her brothers. They were re- they were reasonably close those two, I think. But at the same time, you know, was really wary about what it all meant and what the implications were. So um she she died some years ago, so it's difficult to know exactly but Yeah, it's just wonderful that she did actually deposit them there. It appears to be a complete set. So we're talking about 1921 through to 1963. So it covers the middle of the 20th century. So it's quite a span of 40 years or so. Pretty amazing results, I think.
0: And (laughs) the statistics on your press release, you know, 400,000 words and that 90,000 words were, you know, selected for the James Courage Diaries book that you have edited. I mean, mm-hmm. how and where on earth do you even begin the process of deciding what to put in?
2: Well, it was quite, it was easier than it would seem. Mm. Um, I had transcribed some of them. A research assistant helped me with some, and she um, she actually helped with the grobliest bit, which was the... Two reams of A4 written in small writing on either side, which were the two diaries that dealt in detail with psychiatric treatment. So, she went through there. Much of the rest of what she had transcribed and what I had transcribed, um, those sections of the diaries are mostly in the book. So I removed things that had were divergence or seemed extraneous, or were, he would often do things like copy big, long chunks out of other people's novels for his own reference. So they came out. Um, and by the time that happened, it was really those two diaries, which he called The Diary of the Neurotic, Volume 1 and Volume 2, that, that, that had to be really winnowed, winnowed down. But they were very repetitive. And so um, I wanted to give a sense of his own struggle about it overwhelming the whole book. Um but the, it was the rest of the diaries. It was obvious reading really what went on I think.
0: And you know, from a from a practical standpoint, I mean, how difficult was it to transcribe? Was the handwriting awful? Was it
2: legible? No, it wasn't. It wasn't awful. technically. it wasn't like Catherine Mansfield, whose writing I gather is almost unreadable. And uh, Margaret Scott and others did a Herculean job of those. But this is yeah, no, it was very. It's wonderful, lovely, characteristic handwriting. And in uh, the diaries have actually, we, we've reproduced a couple of diary pages, and his writing never got messier than that. So it'll give people a sense of what his writing was like to read. <laughs> so
0: did you um, have an overall vision of what you were wanting to achieve with this project?
2: I wanted to really show the complexity of Courage and its writing and its. Build um, as a social observer, as a travel writer, as a war correspondent, um, as a gay New Zealander, as a novelist, and so I wanted those elements to all come to the surface. I mean, it's you don't often find people who write diaries, plays, poetry, novels, and short stories. So I mean, straight away you can see that he was quite a um, you know he's quite a diverse writer in terms of what he's tackled but also I wanted to get across that sense of what it's like someone who finds writing difficult but who can sit down and just write out diary entries which are eloquent beautifully poised uh, you know just sort of rolling out of the pen spontaneously and and oh, what a lively writer he is. You know, he's a guy who's a contemporary of uh, Charles Brach and and Frank Sargison and and was very good friends with Brach and Newt Sargison, but he's he's got nowhere near the presence that they have, but he's every bit as good a writer, I think. That's
0: one of the things that really struck me about reading through the diary entries was, you know, even the little short two-liners were really Mm. eloquent and Mm. um, lyrical. Mm.
2: Yes, lyrical. Yeah, he was a completely, absolutely lyrical writer. And when you read his novels, and I've read all but one, which is quite hard to get hold of, you you get to see a sense of of him when he writes novels that some of them were almost overwritten, whereas the diary isn't. It's just spontaneous lyricism, basically, out on the page. The diaries are great. They're they're kind of old-fashioned and fascinating and macabre in places and, and, you know, beautifully written descriptions of countryside and people who live there and you know they are really wonderful but the diary is really much more instant and unreflected upon but there's a freshness that comes out of that I think.
0: Mm. So how as an editor did you ensure for want of a better word like you know impartiality and portraying like a true representation of um, an individual in James and just avoiding potentially um, emphasising your impression of them. Was that something that came into mind when you were going through your selections?
2: Yeah, um, it, it was funny because in most places it was kind of obvious that once a piece came out, then other parts of the diaries would join up. It was almost like, there was a narrative in them that just needed a bit of pruning and trimming and then that could really come out to the surface and and then you would get, once those pieces were joined together with the emissions taken out, you could then get a, a stronger sense of him and of a narrative building up around the particular themes in his life, whether it was his health failing at one point, having tuberculosis, um, the onset of depression or uh, that sense of really being in a particular place in a, 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 in a social setting and really describing it. So it was all, if, it, it was quite easy, I think. And knowing which bit seemed to really characterise his sense of himself and main, you know, they stayed in. It, it almost suggested itself for the most part, which is kind of... Weird,
0: that must have been yeah. lovely, actually, <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, and
1: no- it was.
0: What, what surprised you the most um, in learning about Jane's courage through his diaries?
2: I think really what, a, um, what, a, what an astute observer of his own world he was. You know, the, the, the novels, a lot of them focus on relatively wealthy Um, Cantabrians and their emotional troubles Uh, but he was so much broader than that in a sense and he he could just kind of go somewhere and really relay briefly concisely and lyrically um, about the strange new place in which he he found himself and whether that was a corner of London or the psychiatrist's couch or um, you know the coast as being off the coast of Spain, or visiting a village somewhere, or travelling by train through Yugoslavia on its way from Athens back to London. You know, there's, all of these kind of elements and aspects, and, and being able to see um, what, a, yeah, what a lively observer of life he was.
0: Well, that's great. Well, look, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show, Chris, and talking about James and about the James Courage Diaries. I got quite happily chatted on a lot longer. It's been
2: fascinating.
0: The University Bookshop is collecting new donated books in store for Kiwi Christmas books this year and this year the books are going to be going to Family Works Otago and to Foster Hope Charitable Trust to have children and young people for Christmas. So if you buy books in store um, to donate to this great cause you'll get 20% off the books and they'll also be gift wrapped to go into the donation box. So they're looking for any new uh, picture books, chapter books, books for teens and young adults, fiction, non-fiction, um, so yeah, donate now and help make a kid's Christmas extra special with some books. Well, that is our show for this month. Um, thank you so much for listening in. And thank you to my guests, Emma Neal talking about The pink Jumpsuit, and Chris Brickle talking about James' Courage Diaries. So join me again next month for another fun foray into that wonderful world of books. And until then, enjoy lots of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture perfect, just smell those books and breathe atmosphere. With its staff who entice me with, oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated, right at the front, so you trip over at New Zealand New Releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned.